It is certainly a blessed occasion that we have on this Lord's Day morning. The opportunity that's ours to assemble and to gather for the purpose in which we're gathered to, in fact, offer an acceptable worship to God. That's our plea. That's our strongest and earnest desire. As mentioned earlier, we're so very thankful, not only for the membership at Pippin, but certainly at visitors that have come our way today. And we truly wish that our service would be an uplifting and very faithful presentation to God of the heartfelt feelings that we have in terms of worship. As we begin our lesson today, making preparation for that moment, it's been asked if we might give special thought to, to someone struggling very, very seriously and earnestly in, in a matter of, of sickness. Blake Houston, a friend of the Joy Frizzell family, is uh, very, very serious in terms of battling cancer at this point, a young man on 24 years of age. But it's been asked that we perhaps especially remember him in light of not only what has passed, but also what awaits him in terms of, uh, of future procedures or, or future testing. So if you would bow with me in a, in a, in a brief word of prayer as we especially uh, remember uh, uh, Mr. Blake Houston. And dear Heavenly Father, we're always so thankful for the privilege and the honor of approaching Thee in prayer. We thank Thee, Father, for the blessing of answered prayer in times past. We pray that Thou would always assist us that we might ask in accordance to Thy will. Father, as we're mindful of the blessing of physical health, we're so very mindful also at this time of Blake Houston. The difficulties that he has already faced in treatment, the difficulties that his family has also faced in light of assisting him in this period of time. But, Father, we also know that what awaits him is even perhaps considerable things awaiting in treatment and in other matters touching what hopefully will be a matter of improvement. Father, we do bless, ask that that would be with the doctors, the treatment procedures, the diagnoses, and all the things that are being done that they might be successful that they might in fact be able to take care of the cancer and he might enjoy a very good portion of health yet again. Father, we know that the effectual fervent prayer of those that are righteous avails much with thee, and it's our earnest petition that as we ask according to thy will, that indeed thy will would be done in all things. Father, we beg thee to be with us with the further portions of our service, our time of considering thy word now very especially. And it's in the sweet name of Jesus, thy Son and our Savior, we humbly pray. Amen. As you can see on the wall to my left, we're going to consider our series of lessons that we began a few weeks ago looking at considerations of the family. In particular, as we do that, we have already given consideration to these matters on this introductory slide. We use that opening lesson to cast a spotlight on the nature of a godly kind of marriage, a family, if you please, that isn't the circumstances that so often men would acclaim to be all right. We use the second lesson to look at the man's role in the family, and we found the Bible has much to say. And then in the third lesson, we looked at the woman's role in the family, and two found also a number of things to be considered very, very seriously. Today, after looking at both the man and the woman, it seemed entirely reasonable to slide in or at least give serious thought to a lesson that sets before us what really is so very vital. It's the matter of marriage. We understand so well that marriage is fighting many battles on many fronts these days. There are those who rather greatly disrespect it. There are others in our culture and our society who seemingly have little interest in defending what the Bible has to say about it. 
And you and I would always do well to keep our feet firmly grounded, not only on the easy considerations of it, but these profound matters that the Bible teaches about marriage. For not only is it, of course, a strong reminder to us who are older, but we need to instill it in the next generation and the generation after that so that they too will understand what it is that the Word of God has to say about it. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, I have asked us to at least keep in mind that there are a great many professionals of our day, those who have in many ways some sense of expertise in some things, but when it comes often to the perspective that they present concerning marriage, it's absolutely wrong. Modern psychology, if you please, as it touches considerations of marriage, is often very much misdirected. And the reason is they base, of course, their understanding on the so-called evolutionary presentation of why things are. And, of course, that's utter rubbishness. It's nonsense. The Bible has the only true and worthwhile considerations in regard to counseling or any other advice concerning marriage. And so today, why don't we spend a few moments reflecting on what the Bible has to say about it. On this next slide, I thought it would be wise to perhaps more clearly elaborate the problem that we face. We all understand, of course, we've reached the year 2016, and marriage has had rough times now for, oh, probably seven or eight decades. As the problems come before us, this opening statement is no surprise. Marriage is facing some serious issues, problems that are very, very serious. I thought I would list for you at least a few thoughts to embed in us perhaps the magnitude of some of these problems. Would you just notice them? In the United States of America, the marriage rate is 6.8 per thousand people. Now, simply stated, that means if you take the whole population of the United States of America and then look at the whole number of marriages that take place in a given year and just divide them, you're getting on the order of about 6.8 per thousand people. That takes on an added consideration when you look at the next one. Do the exact same thing, but tally the number of divorces. There are 3.4 divorces per thousand people in the United States of America. So notice, if you just look at that as sheer presentation of numbers, half of those marriages that begin are going to terminate in divorce. That's not a very positive statistic, is it? In fact, it weights heavily upon those who love the biblical presentation of marriage. Not only that, look at the next one. Tally up those marriages that, that in fact are presented and look at the following interesting statistic. A first marriage, the probability that it will last at least five years is only 20%. One in five. No wonder there's such a dark and looming cloud over the way so many in our world look at marriage. Look at the next one. The probability that a first marriage will survive twice that long. Only one in 15. Wouldn't we all agree those are abysmal and woeful statistics? They're very sad. One more. As you perhaps think of it this way, there are many who will enter into a marriage, and then they'll divorce at some point. Well, then they'll choose to enter another marriage. 
Well, look at this interesting statistic. The duration of third marriages is less than half that of second marriages in the United States of America. I say all of that to say this. I would already ask you to notice the very bottom, and we'll go back and fill in a detail above it. There is a serious problem with the model that Americans typically use to present marriage. You can see first marriages most often don't work. Second marriages don't work. Third marriages don't work. There's a problem with the model that most individuals are using to enter into it and to make it a, a, a productive one. Today, let's see what is wrong with that model and what's the right model. Again, what's wrong with the model that so often is being used and what is the right model? I believe we'd all agree that we'd like to be amongst that number that have lasting, productive, faithful, and good marriages. No wonder then, look at what many are choosing to do as you come near to the bottom of that slide. In light of the statistics that so often appear negative, many are just choosing to live together without ever getting married. Cohabiting, as those in fact would call it. But may we never forget the fact that that's sinful. God does not tolerate that. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 2, He expressly says that in order for a man not to be guilty of fornication, he needs to have his own wife. You can't just live with somebody that's not a marriage and that is not recognized in any other way by God except fornication. It's sexual sin. You'll notice also in Galatians 5, 19, the seriousness descriptive of that. The first four elements in that list, those that will not enter heaven, fornication is the first one. So those guilty of fornication find themselves opposed to the very will of God. And in so doing, of course, that's a sinful choice. In light of setting before us then the problem, I would again say there is a very serious model that people are choosing and it's not working. What model will work? What model does work? How about the next slide? Now this lesson as we come to the next point. One of the first considerations that occupies a high element of consideration is this. What about the origin of marriage? The human family by and large is under the impression that our wisdom, our intellectual capability, the means whereby we are able to reason and to think, we can construct and concoct the best way to do things. When it comes to marriage, may we recognize very readily that God owns it. Let's build that consideration like this on this slide. Men have, of course, been wise throughout the ages in the sense of worldly things. We build things, we construct things, we organize things. Notice, though, about marriage. Everywhere you look in the world, on all continents, men and women marry. The jungles of Africa, the jungles of South America, the far distant places in East Asia, marriages take place. I wonder, how did marriage come to be so widespread? Was it the brainchild of some group of scholars a few hundred or perhaps a few thousand years ago? Was it the genius of somebody perhaps a couple of millennia ago? The answer is no. God designed it. He came up with it. 
He orchestrated it, and He set it forth. Look at some of these ideas as we revisit the opening book in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, as God brought one by one the days of creation, we arrive at day number 6. And on that day, we remember that the animals, at least the land-dwelling animals, were created early that day. And then we come to His creation of man, the gentleman we call Adam. Now at that point, Adam was by himself. Although there were a lot of animals with him on earth, Adam was alone. Isn't that interesting? That's what Genesis 2.18 tells us. The man was alone and God said that wasn't good. Animal companionship was not satisfactory. You notice, at that point, God took the initiative to fashion, to create a woman. Eve, we call her, of course, because she was the mother of all living, Genesis 3, verse 20. And God brought her to the man. At that point, Adam made a statement. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam made that pronouncement. She'll be called woman and she has been called that ever since. You notice, though, in the aftermath of the next verse, God now addresses the matter. God speaks and says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. We have here God ordaining marriage. There'll be one flesh, the man and his wife. And it's still a fascinating thing as you appreciate. What have we just then what have we just seen? God organized marriage. He has the patent on it, if you will. It's his copyright. He has the blueprint. Doesn't it stand to reason then that if we want to know what makes a successful marriage, we need to listen to his instructions? Marriage is not the brainchild of man. We, it seems, so often left to our own devices, will find a way to mess things up. But if we follow God's directives, his statements, his commandments, then we can have that marriage of which we read in the Holy Word of God. You'll notice as we come near the bottom, one of the immediate conclusions is, if God has the blueprint and He set it forth as the way it ought to be, then any other model is bound to be an incorrect one. And hence, when we come to Romans chapter 1, we notice that homosexuality and those today that like to call such a thing as marriage, that's nonsense. God owns it. He defined it. And it did not include man with man or woman with woman. God orchestrated it as man with woman. You'll notice then in chapter 1 of Romans how that, that kind of consideration is termed a vile thing. It's an unnatural thing. And it's worthy of death. Not only that, but those who approve of it, those who endorse it, those who lend their support to it. Romans 1.32 are in the same situation. Doesn't that highlight for us then God's model when it comes to marriage is the only successful one. As we come to the next slide, after having highlighted the problem that we face and how that God has originated it, Let's be more specific about this wrong approach. So if you were to ask individuals, at least in general, so what are you looking for in marriage? How do you determine whether a marriage is successful or not? By and large, you'll find answers correspondent to what we're about to study on this slide. As you look down from the top of that slide, we find the following. 
we all know it well. We live in a time when divorce is so easy to obtain. No fault divorces on the basis of irreconcilable differences. Considerations relative to really no fault has to be expressed at all. I'm told in history, not many decades ago, that before a divorce was granted, there had to be fault shown on the part of one or the other. That isn't true anymore. Now, either one that wants can go to a lawyer, simply make assertion, I want a divorce, and it's going to happen. The other party in the marriage has nothing to say about it. The other party in the marriage will, in fact, have nothing to, to, that he or she can use to resist it. It is in regard to all of that. You notice the consideration that so frequently is used is this concept of happiness. So the man, the woman, approach this marriage relationship as long as she or he makes me happy, it's all right and it's good and I think I'll keep her or him. Everything's based on the way they make me feel. Personal selfishness is all that is. Now, is that the biblical model? Is that how you determine whether or not a marriage is, organ or is organized the way that it ought to be? We've already seen how many statistics indicate the model most often used is not working. So many marriages end up failing. And second ones do even more often, and third ones do even more often than that. It's because folks are doing the same thing over and over again, and it didn't work the first time. Why should you think it'll work the second one, or the third one, or the fourth one? When the model is wrong from the outset, it's no great shock that so many difficulties and problems arise from it. When you look at this matter, look at one other statement near the bottom of that slide. As we've highlighted the problem so far, consider this opposite interesting statistic. 53% of marriages worldwide are arranged. That is, dad and mom pick who you're going to marry. That's still quite often true in, in the far eastern parts of, of our world. Countries like India, almost 90% of marriages are arranged. You don't pick your mate, your parents do. Amazingly enough, less than 3% of those marriages end in divorce. Now notice, isn't that interesting here? Someone else picked your mate for you, but it's working a lot better there than it does here, at least in those regards. Maybe all of that leads us to some things under the bottom. Let's make a statement of immediate observation. Marriages are going to face a lot of stresses. There's going to be health issues. There's going to be family problems. There's going to be issues at work. What's going to happen when one or the other of the marriage partners starts facing these things? Well, obviously, under that increased load of stress... That's going to make happiness a far more difficult thing to always have if you base it solely on these matters of physicality. Doesn't it stand to reason? If you base everything on, does it make me happy or not? And you start feeling with, dealing with health issues. Four years into the marriage, suddenly he's having health troubles and he's in the hospital. I didn't marry him for this. Three years into the marriage, 
she begins having health problems, and he says, I didn't bargain for this. Isn't it fair to say that now there's going to be a problem, a set of difficulties with what is, what is it that's going to take place? As you come to the bottom of that slide, we're going to then think somewhat interestingly over the next few moments about what is it that is the biblical model. What is the right thing to say and to do? Let's look at some of these Bible truths over the next few moments. Now remember, as you think about this model with me, we're going to be in a position to think about what it is the Bible has to say to us and for us. I don't know if you need to check Mr. Hewlin or not, but... The Bible truths concerning marriage are these things that are so very telling. These particular matters are timeless. Not only that, but they are so very important. On this particular slide, I would ask you to begin to notice the following with me. First thing we appreciate is marriage is a sacred arrangement. Being a member of a marriage, being a part in a marriage, it was not like being a member of the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or not like being a, a member of the math club at college. It is not the same thing. In fact, they're fundamentally different. This is a sacred agreement. You might notice almost immediately that that means God has a part in it if it's going to be as it ought to be. Don't we read in Matthew 19, verse number 6, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It is God that did the joining. It's true that there was a marriage certificate, and some official, some civil official signed it. But in the final analysis, God did the joining. And isn't it amazing to consider that in the halls of heaven, that particular union was verified. It was highlighted there. That's the most exciting thing about it. No wonder in light of that, we almost immediately come to the next one, as God has asserted it. We appreciate so readily. It's a lifetime commitment. It's a lifetime commitment. That makes it again so very different than the typical consideration of other things that we often face in life. And by the way, this is one immediate matter that's so distinct from that model that we saw earlier. Remember, in a model that says, as long as he or she makes me happy. So the very first time or the very few times that he or she doesn't make me happy, I'll divorce her and I'll get another one. Or I'll divorce him and I'll get another one. That is not a model that's successful. After all, this commitment we notice, Jesus Himself said in Matthew 19, verse number 9, Whosoever therefore shall put away his wife and marry another, except it be for adultery, or, for, or rather except for fornication, and marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever it be that marrieth her committeth adultery. Jesus then stated this provision for a lifetime arrangement. It is in that context I would invite you to reflect on that lesson text that was read in our hearing a little bit earlier. In Romans, the seventh chapter, 
Let us look again at verses 2 and 3. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So we notice here's a circumstance exactly like the one that we've at least been considering. A man and a woman are married. And the text says she is bound by the law to that husband so long as they're alive. A lifetime commitment. Considering after that, he says, if she's married to another man while he's living, she is called an adulteress. She's guilty of sexual immorality. And that's not a pleasing thing, of course, before the eyes of our Heavenly Father. Maybe in light of all those things, we can pause to note this. What might be one comment in light of those earlier statements that we just made? There's going to be pressures and difficulties that we all face, be it health-related, job-related, family-related. Marriage takes commitment. There may be days that you don't feel as good because maybe you're sick or maybe your wife or your husband is sick. That's not the time to give up. It's the time to encourage, to support, to do that which your commitment, the vow that you made requires of you. Not only that, you'll notice marriage is founded on love. We've already seen that the last two weeks. Husbands are told to love your wives. Wives are told to love your husbands. Those are matters intricately placed in the Word of God. One of the things we notice about that biblical description of love is the dedication that's involved in it. It's a conscious direction to do that which is in the best interest of the one you love. That's a powerful statement. As a husband, I'll do what's in her best interest, my wife. As a wife, I'll do what's in his best interest, my husband. Because that's what love is. I won't act selfishly. I won't act without regard for what he considers important. I won't act without regard for his feelings and his compellings in life. You notice that one thing we've seen that opposes almost everything we've discussed so far that's good is selfishness. If selfishness works its way into a marriage, it doesn't bode well. Because again, they're one flesh. They have been united by the God of heaven as such. As you think about this matter of love, we notice that, of course, there is a bit of a development in that. When a young man and young woman first start dating, oh, she looks so pretty, or he looks so handsome. And maybe at that moment, there's a great deal of emotion and infatuation, physical attractiveness. But you'll notice the love described in the Word of God is much deeper than just what's on the surface. What's her heart like? What's his heart like? Is he committed to the things of God? Is she committed to the things of God? It's when that's in place that a genuine love can grow and develop. And of course, the right time will come and he'll say, Will you be my wife? Will you marry me? 
as you appreciate all those things, notice this union is described in the Bible as called one flesh. Three times in the Word of God it's called this. Once in Genesis, once in Ephesians, once in Matthew. When God has identified or described it three times this way, isn't it a reminder to us that it's a closeness that is remarkable? We perhaps have our friends on earth, maybe an associate at work, two gentlemen like to watch a ball game together, or maybe they go out to lunch. But it tells us that in marriage, there is a closeness, a genuine closeness. That wife is the husband's best friend, and the husband is the wife's best friend. The unity and the closeness you appreciate there highlights for us the fact of this one flesh that we've discussed so far. Maybe as you think about that one flesh, doesn't it highlight how important it is to share and to communicate, to share lives with each other? Because it's that sharing that will ultimately even make the bonds of love grow even stronger as the years pass by. Maybe as you come to the bottom of that slide, we can obviously make this statement too. Marriage and the involvement it has concerning trust, that's vital. Some have even commented that trust is one of the very roots upon which a successful marriage will exist. If the husband doesn't trust his wife, or if the husband or the wife doesn't trust her husband, there's just going to be problems. If she goes off to work and he doesn't trust that she's faithful to him during the day, or if he goes off to work and she can't trust that he is faithful to her throughout the day, that marriage is simply going to be at best in shambles and very weak. That obviously means each one needs to dedicatedly commit him or herself to the other. That man shouldn't be acting toward other women the way he acts toward his wife. And she shouldn't be acting toward other men the way she acts toward her husband. There should be no flirting. There should be none of these other kinds of chicaneries whereby things reserved for the mate are compromised. And so the woman shouldn't wear inappropriate clothing. Other men have no business seeing that. It belongs to the husband. By the same token, the men shouldn't behave themselves inappropriately. It belongs to her, his wife. Trust has to exist. If it doesn't, the marriage is so weak. You'll notice that requires honesty and purity. Maybe it's in light of that that we at least could comment concerning these verses. In 2 Corinthians 8, 21, as well as Romans chapter 12, we notice how the Bible encourages us to be individuals and people of honesty. That certainly is true of our marriages. Maybe it's in light of those things we reach a final set of considerations. The final thoughts on this slide. At that point, you'll notice then that marriages demand good decisions. Our marriages demand a, an appropriate set of behaviors. It is in that regard I would call you to think about these verses. I mentioned a moment ago some statements of warning. Warnings, of course, about how the husband or the wife are not to behave inappropriately, and yet those are amplified by verses like these. In Proverbs chapter number 5, Statements are very much made directed toward the man, quite frankly. 
warning him so very clearly not to be careless in the way he acts toward other women. Be satisfied at home, the text says. You've made commitment to this woman. You've married her. She's married you. You are to be enraptured by her. You are to find yourself fully satisfied in those ways by her and her alone. You don't search for other things on the internet. You don't search for other relationships with, with other women. That's, a, that's aside from the things of God. God, as you see, placed a very strong set of boundaries around marriage. He has safeguarded it so wonderfully. It is with that in mind, we notice how honorable marriage is. Marriage is honorable in all in the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge, Hebrews 13, 4. The model we've described from God will work. It does work. And many in this audience are a testimony to that. Oh, if only our world would understand that the model so often utilized is a failure. But God's model, because He has the blueprint for marriage, it will work and it does work. Surely in light of all those things, we can now make this statement. The very best marriage partners are faithful Christians. Because the very attributes that you would expect in a marriage are the very things that a Christian lives his or her life trying to accomplish. In 2 Peter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, though this was written for the benefit of Christians, notice what it says. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Question, how many of those attributes would you want to be true in your marriage? Do I want a husband or a wife that's patient? that's kind, that's godly, that's loving, that's virtuous. Surely we would all be quick to say, absolutely, that's the kind of marriage partner I want. And yet that was written in regard to Christians and what we should be. It's safe to say then that in order to be the very best husband or wife that a person can be, that person needs to be a dedicated and devoted servant to the God of heaven. Those are the final remarks on that slide. Could we not say then that the anchor, the absolute anchor of a successful marriage is not my personal happiness. That's a subsequent afterthought. The anchor is the truth in relation to what the Bible says about marriage. And if we're anchored to that, as a Christian, happiness will develop, happiness will be the case. Because we're promised in Psalm 128, verses 1 and 2, those who love the Lord and those who, of course, follow His way will know what happiness is all about. Today, we've studied about the characteristic of marriage. We've highlighted in this closing slide, this summary slide, this concluding slide, we'll finish it like this. A marriage, as it's outlined in the Word of God, is a remarkable blessing. It really is a foretaste of what heaven will be. It is a sweet and powerful foundation, a fortress against all the evils and various things of this life. Those of us that are married, may we strive to live as God would have us to, to make those marriages the sweetest things they can be. To those who are not married, may I say, find you a marriage, 
a, a gentleman, a young man or woman who is a Christian. And you, of course, enter into that marriage fully understanding what the Bible says and be true to it in the way God says. And as we think about, of course, what God says about marriage, that certainly means some, of course, are not at liberty to remarry. And as we think about all those things, those are what are critical elements in this model that the world doesn't understand. But as faithful servants of the Lord, we do. As we close this lesson today, we're certainly thankful for the opportunity to study truths like these. And we hope that we've each been encouraged by, it might be there's someone in the audience that's not a faithful Christian. We would urge you to think with urgency about your situation. If you have never become a Christian, let today be the day. We'd be happy to assist you in your public response to the gospel. You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you have known that but have strayed from it, come back to your first love. Simply for sins known publicly, make confession and repentance of them, and we'll pray to God for you. If we could be of help today to anyone, we would invite you to come even now while together we stand and while we sing.